we continue our service this morning. Acts chapter 21, we'll begin reading in verse 26 and going through the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 26. I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. Acts chapter 21, beginning verse 26, to the end of the chapter. God's word declares, Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Israel was in an, all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked him who he was and what he had done. And some. Among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he had reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him! Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, and because of our chapter break, we have to stop and don't get to hear what he has to say. Well, last week we took a look at the circumstances surrounding Paul's relationship with the Jerusalem church and the circumstances that would lead really to him being found in the temple while he was really trying to make uh, the Judaizers within the Jerusalem church happy um, actually led to uh, the event or the occasion of him being identified and uh, eventually arrested, beaten, and then arrested, uh, and then, of course, leading into the balance of what we find in the book of Acts of his trial. We looked at at the circumstances within the church and some of the disturbing elements that we saw there. And uh, perhaps one facet that I really didn't investigate last week 
uh, at all and really share with you is the time frame that we are talking about. Um, by this point, we are running right about 56 A.D., and that might not, not mean a lot to you. Um, and we know that the, the transition from uh, the uh, two judges, if you will, that Paul's going to have to face later on, of Felix and Festus, the transition between them, um, is uh, going to happen in 58. And so for a couple of years, he's going to be held in Caesarea uh, by the sea. And uh, so we're right around 56 A.D., And just to give you a time frame of why the uh, circumstances of the Church of Jerusalem are so important is that uh, the Church of Jerusalem is not going to exist in about 10 years. It's going to be gone. Um, In 66 A.D., um, we're going to have Cestius and his forces arriving to take Jerusalem. He's going to fail, and it looks like Jerusalem is going to get a reprisal. Um, and they chase Cestius' army and, and have a pretty significant victory, it would seem. And all that did was incite Rome's anger to send Titus down and demolish Jerusalem. It took him three and a half years to do it. Um, a long siege, a horrible siege. Um, in the midst between Cestius' defeat and Titus's arrival, um, Jerusalem is emptied of Christians. And so the Church of Jerusalem is not going to exist uh, very much longer. There will not be a church in Jerusalem ten years from this time. And so, just to get you a time frame, when we look at the circumstances of this church, and you say, well, what's, uh, you're a little bit disparaging over the church of Jerusalem and their toleration of the Judaizers, of those that were zealous for the law. Um, and I, I believe God was disparaging of them too, of that attitude. And, and uh, we see really a development, a movement of Christianity very significantly and very dramatically away from Jerusalem um, of necessity. And it's going to, and I add that this morning to start off with, because I want to set our frame of mind into understanding God's role in human history. Uh, Obviously, uh, you guys have heard me teach extensively about uh, the necessity of of the liberty of man to make a choice that we choose, whether we're going to obey, whether we're going to receive Christ as our Savior, that I don't hold to Calvinism in in pretty much any form. Um, That doesn't mean that I don't believe in the sovereignty of God. I just believe that it's not God itself. That God still operates within the confines of the decisions of men, but he can work in such a way within circumstances for the benefit and for the fulfillment, benefit of his people, the fulfillment of his purposes. And we do not have this micromanaging God, but rather on the macro scale, he will accomplish what needs to be accomplished. And if that requires him sometimes to go down into very minute details, he will do so. And so when we see God responding to Israel and coming and sending prophet after prophet after prophet saying, please repent, please repent, or else, if you would just repent, you could avoid all of these things. And we have potentiality shared by God through the prophets. There are courses in your life that are open for you to choose. And if you choose this course of life, here are the consequences. If you choose this course of life, here are the consequences of blessing that's there. And now it's your choice. 
but let there be no mistaking that God will, based upon your decision, make this happen in your life. There's no avoiding those consequences. And so when we come to the Jerusalem church and we see them uh, disappear, they just disappear from the book. We don't find them coming to the aid of Paul. We don't find them engaged at all in, the, in, in anything else from here on out. We begin to see this strong transition that is going to be happening from the center of the Christian authority being in Jerusalem to it being moved. It really moves up to Antioch to the north. Uh, and and it, it will move around a little bit further uh, over the centuries decades particularly early on but uh, it's going to move to Alexandria for a little season and and, and to uh, Constantinople and places like that but you're going to find the, the, the it's going to empty out of Jerusalem and we must look at that and say well what was going on there and we find within the statements of of James that they were looking to accommodate those who were zealous for the law um, and what is tragic to me if I hear someone say that about a church, oh, they're zealous for the law, is why aren't you zealous for Christ, um, who set us free from the law, who has fulfilled the law, who has called us to a, a relationship with him that exceeds the law. For now we are in, in the spirit and, and uh, seeking righteousness on a scale and on a, on a level, on a plane that we no longer even uh, need to consider the law anymore because of the plane of our relationship with Christ. And so this was the circumstances of what Paul's entered. We don't find him engaging, arguing, disputing this. He simply uh, surrenders to their authority that they had at the time. Uh, and maybe part of God telling him what his future was was a little bit of understanding that the transition into the Gentile world was going to be accomplished very soon and, in fact, was going to predate um, Paul's death. So Paul is going to survive longer than the Jerusalem church, I would contend, uh, about ten more years. Uh, the evidence is he spends two years there. He's going to spend a few years in Caesar's court. We have evidence that he gets out. He gets a trip to Spain um, out of it before he is brought to death. And so um, at this point, uh, the Jerusalem church is in more jeopardy than Paul is as we go into this account. Uh, again, this is a man who is uncompromising. And he's not afraid. He's not backing down from the fight. He is simply recognizing that it's not one to be won anymore. It's not a fight to be won here in Jerusalem any longer um, because they have really uh, just simply put out the fact that they are going to... Uh, seek to please um, these Judaistic uh, believers who are zealous for the law and really make two classes of Christians that God didn't want to have happen. So we come into the actual events, and uh, as we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer and uh, take a look at uh, the circumstances coming up to Paul's uh, beginning of a new ministry, of incarcerated ministry that he has before him. Let's go, Lord, in prayer first. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word and the opportunity to study it and to uh, continue to, to consider it, to meditate upon it. And Lord, we do pray that you might direct our thoughts in this time, that they might 
first of all, be free from distraction. There's so many things that can come into our mind um, from the world and from uh, the recesses of our thoughts. And Lord, we pray that you might uh, just help us to focus and have our attention clearly upon your word and its truth and what it means to our lives. And then, Lord, we do pray for your spirit to direct that what is spoken and received uh, might uh, be guarded from error, from opinions of men, from the philosophies of this world, and that your spirit might have the preeminence in our, in our uh, study of your word, and that you might uh, illuminate it this time. And then, Lord, we pray also that you might find uh, willing hearts that are humble and surrendered, and ready to receive uh, the principles and truths that you have for us today. And uh, we thank you for your word and for the opportunity to study it. Uh, And we rejoice in it. And we pray that it might be a valuable time to your honor, glory, and praise in our lives. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come into uh, what we've been anticipating, haven't we? I mean, Luke's kind of built this up to this point. In his writing, he introduced it really a couple of chapters ago. And that's a long time in my preaching calendar uh, when we were back there when Paul was uh, led by the Spirit that he needed to get to Jerusalem and knowing what was waiting for him there. So the Spirit was pressing Paul to get to Jerusalem. He has been traveling and he, we saw, of course, the time he spent with the Ephesian elders. He's uh, come, he, he spent a lot of time in, in different regions, was prophesied all the way along, knowing exactly what's going to come. Here's what you're going to have to confront. He still pressed on and pressed on and pressed on, uh, being driven by the Spirit to accomplish and fulfill this vow that would take him to Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost for a one-week duration. The, the Pentecost isn't really just a single day. We could identify it as that 50 days after Passover, but it really involves a week-long uh, commitment there. And we find that uh, we have been building and building and building with anticipation as we uh, see Luke just uh, share the, the concern of all of his traveling companions. We see him arriving, and we don't find the same kind of spirit that we saw in Caesarea with... with um, uh, the, the prophets and the prophetesses um, and the church that was concerned over Paul. We come in and we come to Jerusalem. They're not really concerned about Paul at all. They're concerned about, don't you cause division within our church, even though our church is divided before you ever arrive. We just don't want you to show it to us and, and, and to spark anything in that. And so we find um, this, this anticipation, this expectation, and like every good story, writer or storyteller, Luke is able to draw Theophilus uh, to this point of, of, of expectation of what's going to happen. We don't, all we know is that Paul's going to be chained. We don't really know much more. And here we see it initiating very quickly. And, and uh, while we see some things happening, we are purposely given an order of events to avoid us thinking that somehow the prophets were wrong. Because uh, Luke doesn't tell us right away that, that Paul's getting beaten. It just looks like they're, uh, they want to kill him, but they're not getting very far. Um, but the fact is, is that that wasn't what the prophets said. The prophets didn't say that you're going to get beaten and killed, stoned, but rather you're going to be chained. That's what the prophets foretold. 
to Paul. When you arrive there, you're going to be in prison. You're going to be chained. You're going to lose your freedom. They never said anything about his law and about his life. And I'm convinced that Paul had a settledness and a, and a confidence that no one ever said that this would cost him his life. And so we come into the account, and Paul, of course, is there doing exactly what he was told to do, fulfilling the entire week. There's no indication that he had to be there a whole week to fulfill his personal vow. The requirement to be there a week was to fulfill the Nazarite vow that some of those within the church had taken. That alone kind of disturbs us a little bit. But uh, that was his purpose, is to, is to help them and to pay their way through that process of completing that Nazarite vow. And so they're there, and uh, they're almost through the whole week. It looks like we made it through. It's almost time to take a deep breath and exhale. Whew, we made it. But we're not quite there. They were almost done. The, the, the days of purification were almost completed. Um, and, uh, in fact, the evidence is that it was that day that they were supposed to be completed. Uh, the final offering was going to be made for the, these men to become Nazarites. And so they would have required them to go into um, the courtyard of the Jews, into the inner courtyard of the men, and uh, to offer this right before the, the temple. Um, and so they were into the, the innermost area that a non-priest could go. Would, is what is required of them to fulfill the Nazarite vow. And obviously, yes, ladies, that means no ladies could ever take the Nazarite vow because you could never get in there. And so as for only men, uh, Jewish men, and so he would have gone in with these two um, as their sponsor, if you will, um, and he was fully aware of these. He's a very well-trained rabbi, and so he knew every, every aspect of what was required and they're going in. So they're in the innermost part of the temple. And it is there, and in the midst of that, that we find um, some Jews from Asia. In verse 27. The Jews from Asia see him in the temple, got the mob stirred up. And the crowd is the inner crowd of Jewish men. These are some of your, these are all men that have sanctified themselves, that is, they purified themselves to be able to be in there. Um, they have uh, very carefully made sure not to touch anything dead. They have done all the washings that was required of them. They, they were all there as purified Jews, there to be in full worship uh, in the sacrificial system of Israel. And so uh, these, uh, if you will, are going to be kind of your fanatical Jews. They're going to be zealous for the law. All these ones that are in the inner area. And so this isn't out in Solomon's porch where the church, larger church, met on a regular basis. This isn't the outer courtyard, the courtyard of the Gentiles, the courtyard of the women. No, this is the inner part. And so these men were extraordinarily zealous. And so when this cry comes up, um, and the the cry is, as soon as they recognize Paul is there, they've seen him in the streets. We're told that a little bit later on. That they had seen him in the streets walking around Jerusalem. Well, that's fine. You can be in the streets, but you come into the temple knowing the history of Paul, which they're going to try to tell people, but that doesn't get them very far. And so they also saw him with someone out in the streets of Jerusalem. And that they can use as a mob gatherer 
But they first want to deal with the theology involved. That this is an individual that's been going out and teaching against three things. And they're going to share these three things. And they're of such huge concern to the Jews, all three of these things. It says, he has taught all everywhere. They use this, he uses this double, they use this double statement uh, of inclusiveness. This man is teaching everyone everywhere. This guy's going all over the Roman Empire teaching everyone. That includes our not only Jews but Gentiles. He's teaching all men everywhere against the people. And the people there are the people of Israel. He's teaching them against us. Now this would have fallen into place with the current condition of the Israelite people in the Roman Empire. Remember that they aren't really in a really good place right now with the Roman hierarchy. Uh, Nero is emperor at this point, but he's not gone crazy like he has later on. That's going to be like later, 70. It's going to be a few years away before he, he goes and does some of the things, horrific things that he does against not only the Jews, but Christians. Um, when you hear stories of Nero using Christians and setting them on fire to light his garden parties, um, that was late in it, later, much later than this time. So Nero is the emperor, but he hasn't gone over the edge yet. And so, um, but there's still a friction, a, a negative relationship, and these men are trying to pin this on Paul. He's gone all through the Roman Empire, and he's been teaching against us Israelites. And maybe he's the one to blame for our current uh, conflict with Rome, that we aren't in favor with them any, any longer. So that's the first thing they want to say that he's teaching against. He says in the second thing, he's going everywhere, telling everyone and teaching them against the law. And remember, if we just the last week, we have, this is going to incite not just Jewish Jews, but Christian Jews who are zealous for the law in this place. Remember, this is exactly what James says. When you come here, this is what's been said, is that you've been teaching against the law. You've been teaching that, that we aren't um, need to keep the law, that you don't have to circumcise your children, you don't have to walk according to the customs. This is what the Jews have heard that you've been teaching. And so at this point, um, not only have they tapped the nationalism that is so strong in Israel right now, um, but they've also tapped into their zealousness for the law, and this group in the inner temple area is going to be the most zealous group for the law of everyone on the Temple Mount. And so this man is teaching everyone everywhere against our law, the law of Moses. And then, and this goes along much with what the accusation was against Christ himself, when he, when walking through the temple, was invited to comment on its splendor and said, it's not going to be here very much longer, referring to his own body, but then also referring to the temple there when they asked what was going to happen in Matthew 24 and Luke, where both times Christ made it very clear that that temple would be destroyed within the lifetime of that first generation of the church. And so here comes this accusation against 
his teaching, that he's teaching against this holy place. And this is of grave concern to the Jews. Even the Romans acknowledged the sanctity of the Jewish temple. And it was one thing that they just granted Israel all the way through. And it really was a leftover, if you will, um, from the Greek period. But Rome acknowledged it. And so um, the Israel and the Jewish faith was a uh, on and off again in favor, but it was a legitimate or legal uh, religion to hold to um, in the Roman Empire. And so they maintain the sanctity, and when you're going to find uh, the commander coming down in, he will not violate this inner area. They will not go in there. Um, they're going to enter into the outer courtyards uh, but they're not going to come in and violate this area, nor the courtyard, likely of the women, um, possibly the courtyard of the Gentiles, but maybe not even there, and uh, unless it's in an extreme emergency. And so we find that this is the accusation. They're against us as a people, they're against the law of Moses, and they're against this temple where we worship, um, all of which Christ addressed. And obviously we know Paul's heart is for the people of Israel. He's going to make that very clear in his statement we're going to read next week and study the next chapter. But uh, we have this threefold accusation. And you say, well, that's, it, it's somewhat founded, isn't it? Um, Christ did teach that, that temple was going to be destroyed. Um, Christ did say that that wasn't the, the residence of God, um, that our bodies are are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes this to Corinthians. He's already written that statement. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's in you which you have of God, and you're not your own. That this is where God resides, not in that building on that hill anymore. So there's some truth to their accusations, really on all three levels. Remember that Paul is the one who talked about that, <laughs> that God can cut off and graft in. He can graft in the wild branches into this, this well-groomed tree. So he's taught some of this against the idea. And, and for most Israelites, they're like, oh, he's talking about cutting off Israel to graft in the Gentiles. So we can see some well-foundedness here, but to... Uh, deal with th these three areas of doctrine would, would necessitate that Paul and the leadership of Israel would, would be able to sit down and have discourse and interaction. But these people from Asia, they've already been through that and lost. Remember, they lost all those discussions. They couldn't resist him. And there are a few people in Jerusalem who've encountered that as well already. Um, Saul of Tarsus being one of those who at a guy's stoning heard the truth and couldn't resist it. In other words, they couldn't defend it, and so their best thing is to silence it. And it's all going to happen again here. And so these men are, are going to lay out the theology of the attack, but that's not going to incite a mob. It could, but it's going to incite discussion, it's going to incite engagement, but that's not their purpose. And so... They take it one level farther. 
I, I think this threefold accusation um, has some merit to it. From what I've seen Paul write in First, Second Corinthians and Romans and Galatians, I think there's merit, just like we talked about last week, there's merit to these, these accusations, this, this threat, if you will, to the status quo that has been uh, established here in Jerusalem. And now, though, um, they add, in the second half of verse 28... The one thing that would certainly disturb everybody. It says, and furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And Luke takes a little parenthetical statement to tell us why they had thought that. um, That this was a supposition. They had made an assumption that since they saw him with Trophimus, a full-fledged Greek, not not half like Timothy that was circumcised that could be brought in. But this is a full-fledged Greek man. Um, they saw him with that guy uh, walking in the streets maybe earlier that day. And to many Jews, by the way, that contact um, made you impure for entering the holy place, the courtyard of the men, where the sacrifices were offered. So to many of them, um, that made Paul unclean and un, uh, unrighteous in being there. That he himself was defiled by this intimate contact and association with this Gentile throughout the city. Well, when this fourfold accusation, it's really only the last one that isn't true, they made an assumption without that the that the two men being purified, maybe one of them was a Greek, um, or maybe he was in a corner somewhere watching it all. Um, They made this assumption, and they cry it out. He has violated the holiest place we can go to. He has desecrated this, and he has put his teaching into full practice and has brought this injury to our people, to the law, to the temple. And so verse 30 says all the city was disturbed. The people ran together. They grabbed Paul. They're going to drag him out of the temple. Um, and immediately the doors are shut. And the whole idea is that now the temple guard is going to have to go through with the priests. They're going to have to re-sanctify the temple area if it had been, in fact, uh, desecrated. And so they're they're going to stop all sacrifices, all <laughs> Events, all worship is stopped. Everything has to cease until this has been resolved, until the purification of this site has been reaccomplished. And that means they're going to have to have a sacrifice of a lamb. They're going to have to go around with blood, and they're going to have to purify things. And by this point, remember, these are all very zealous for the law. And again, I know this is an argument from, from absence. Where are the Christians? Where's the Church of Jerusalem? And we have a mob scene being, having been incited. And their purpose is to do to them what they've done to Stephen. And really what they did to Christ eventually. They had stoned this guy before, perhaps, some of these men. It was in Asia that Paul was stoned and dragged out and thrown on a garbage heap as dead. They've stoned this guy before. 
They're going to do it again. Didn't take the first time, we'll get them the second time. And I say, well, how can Paul have the spirit and attitude that he's going to demonstrate very I mean, the vent is still in its in its fur, in its in its excitement, and, and, and it's still generating anxiety and anger, and yet we're going to find Paul with a very calm spirit in the midst of all of this. And I would contend with you is that that is the purpose of God's warnings, is that we confront these things and not have anxiety and not have uh, uh, reactions that are ungodly. That when we know tribulation is coming, we are then prepared and ready to receive them and to do so in a calm spirit, in a spirit that, that isn't so concerned about your own welfare and your own interests, but is concerned about your mission. Paul wasn't concerned. He's drug out. He's getting beaten to death. Um, and suddenly, um, word got to the commander, verse 31. They were going to kill him. News comes to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem's in an uproar. Everyone's engaged in this. It's just wrapped up the whole city. And so the soldiers and centurions, and when you see that, you immediately know how many people this guy is controlling, right? Centurion is a man who has authority over a hundred. He has more than one of them. We're talking about hundreds of soldiers coming down out of the fortress that sits and abuts itself against the Temple Mount, and he is going to resolve this quickly and decisively. And he fires into this mob scene. Um, he's, a lot of languages are being spoken in the midst of all of this. Um, it's obvious that the guy getting beaten must have incited this, or at least he's the focal point of it. It's not hard to identify the focal point of a mob. And so, when the soldiers, the commander arrives, they stop their activity. The fact is, is that the Jews at this point still did have authority to kill Paul. According to Roman law, the Romans said that they would not interfere on the execution of the death penalty inside the temple. But where are they now? He threw them out of the temple. If they had just stayed inside, they could have executed this, but they would have further defiled the temple. And so... The mob scene actually ends up working to Paul's favor. Can you believe that? A mob helping. Because if it hadn't been a mob scene, the commander would have been brought would not have been brought down. If it had done orderly and 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 under the, the direction of the uh, of the Sanhedrin, if it had been done in that fashion, um, the likelihood is the word had never gotten to the commander. They would have never sent these hundreds of soldiers in into the scene. Um, and Paul would have been dead. You might say, a mob works? Well, it was one of the agents by which God is going to preserve Paul's life. Because without this turmoil erupting the whole city, 
um, the likelihood is, is the leadership and the and the uh, committed Jewish people would have killed him and been uh, allowed to do that by the Roman Empire. But because the whole city is in an uproar and the commander is concerned about keeping the, the larger peace, he comes in and he finds and isolates the, the center of it. He could have easily seen that from the fortress uh, windows where the center is, right outside the temple doors. And he goes down and he arrests Paul. Now, we would like to think, think that this is for his own safety. And we know that it is, but that's not the intent here. This man is assuming, the commander is assuming, that Paul deserves this. <laughs> but uh, we better make sure who this guy is and what the circumstances are. And remember, you have multiple languages being spoken. We have some people probably speaking Hebrew. We have Aramaic being spoken. We have some Greek being spoken. Apparently, some Egyptian being spoken in the region um, because he confuses Paul with, with an Egyptian who was leading a bunch of assassins. And that was a couple years ago, but they never caught the Egyptian leader. They killed all the assassins. But they didn't catch him. He got away. And they're thinking he infiltrated and got back into or into the region of Jerusalem, maybe raising up another group of, of uh, people trying to create an insurrection. And so all these languages are being spoken. And most of the mob doesn't really know what it's all about. Um, they're all caught up in it. And I would even go so far to say it's a likelihood there's probably even some Christians there that don't really know what it's all about but this guy desecrated the temple. And they're zealous for the law. The commander, of course, takes him, binds him with two chains in verse 33, and we go, oh, there we go. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what has been prophesied. This is what Paul has been expecting. So far, he has not been bound. So there's a sense of safety, even while you're getting beaten to death, that... This isn't what God said would happen. And therefore, while it's certainly painful and not something you take delight in, neither do you have to be anxious. And this is what it means to believe in the Word of God. And so when the Bible says, be anxious for nothing, it has a foundation, and that foundation of having no anxiety in your life is that you trust what the Bible says. And you trust the God of that Bible to do what he has promised to do. And he has promised some incredible things, has he not, in your Bible? I mean, he has promised you some magnificent things that even if things, even people do evil to you, God can turn it to good. And so Paul can sit here even while he's being beaten without really fear that this is the end because it can't be the end. I haven't been chained yet. Here comes the Roman commander. And by the way, chaining people is not something the Jews did a lot of. That's something the Romans did a lot of. So here he comes and he's now chained and he's being drugged away and the mob is still going after him. And the man can't figure it out. It's just total chaos. They're actually carrying Paul out amongst the soldiers because of the 
mob of the crowd is still uh, excited and, and wanting to see the completion of the slaughter of this falsely accused man, at least on the last point that I think is really what incited everybody. And in the midst of all this, we come to verses 37 and following, and we are just (laughs) taken aback. Paul's response is that, I'm a Roman citizen there, beat me up, get him. He had that legal right. He could have turned this entire garrison and turned it against the people of Israel. He was falsely accused. And he's going to make that point. And he could even hold up his legal things given to him by the Roman Empire, by Caesar himself, and guaranteed for him as a citizen. And he's going to use that a little bit later. Uh, But that's not where he starts. He doesn't want to turn this military unit against the mob he wants to turn the mob to Christ and maybe some of the military in the process of it although that's not his primary concern and this is the beginning of the transition and I want to just this is a little parenthesis for you okay Um, everywhere Paul went he went to the synagogue first Right? They didn't want to hear it, and he went to the Gentiles. Everywhere he went. Um, even the place that didn't have a synagogue, he went and found some Jewish gals out by the river. Philippi. Everywhere he goes, he's going to go to the Jews first. When they reject the message, he takes it to the Gentiles. There's already a body of God-fearing Gentiles that are expecting him, waiting for him. We are now transitioning into a new ministry for him. And by God's grace, he does the exact same thing. We're going to hear Paul give his testimony three times. And the first time is going to be to the Jews. Right here on the steps. He's going to go to the Jews first. Then he's going to go to the Gentiles. Even in this time of ministry as a prisoner. He's going to begin it by sharing the gospel with the Jews and his testimony. He's going to share his whole testimony next week. We're going to see it again as he shares it. Felix and then Festus, King Agrippa. All these people are going to be involved in hearing his testimony. It's going to go to the Jews first, even in his incarceration. And so his heart, and when he tells the Romans, you know, I would that all Israel be saved. I would that I could be accursed that they would come to Christ. This man, remember, he's bloodied and beaten. Still is not looking for revenge. He's still not looking for his rights. He's still not looking for um, justice even. He's looking to share Christ. And so he sees an opportunity They are just about ready to go into the barracks. They're on the steps, which means the Jews aren't going to follow. And he asks this question of the commander. Claudius Lysias. 
May I speak to you? And the guy's already shocked. You, t- you speak Greek? You Egypt- you're that Egyptian guy, and we know that he doesn't speak Greek. He doesn't know Greek. That's one of the things. And this guy's just met. Um, you let all this? No, Paul says, that's not him. That's not me, I mean. Verse 39, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. That's a Roman province. I'm a good Roman guy. Uh, I am a citizen of that community. He doesn't go into his citizenship as a Roman, but of that community, allowing the commander maybe to inquire, but the commander doesn't do that. And uh, But he does say, listen, I'm a citizen of this pretty prominent city. It's a pretty important city in that region. Uh, and so, no, I'm not who you think I am. Let me speak to the people. And so he allows Paul to turn around. And we're going to look at his speech next week. Uh, I really just want to talk about the spirit that makes him ask all of this. Having been beaten, all of his rights violated, falsely accused of doing something he hadn't done, really. Maybe he did teach that, but he certainly did not bring a Gentile into the holy place. And we might look at this and say, how can he have this spirit about him? And he says, just let me speak to the people. And he's going to turn and speak in Hebrew. And it's going to catch all of those Jews by surprise. Remember, Claudius Lysias doesn't speak Hebrew. He's not going to know what's said in the next chapter. This next chapter is for the Jews who were just being stopped from killing him. And those are the only ones he is talking to. He is not yet talking to his Roman captors, his Roman deliverers, really we could say. But he's not really talking to them yet. That time's going to come. But right now, he has a concern, number one for these, and the best way to get these people's attention is to talk to them in the Hebrew tongue, and it does exactly what Paul thought it was to do, and it silenced them all. He's talking Hebrew, not Aramaic. He's not talking in Greek. He's, he's, he's talking, uh, or Latin, or anything. He's talking Hebrew, which means that he's only talking to us. He's not talking to the Romans. And as he's at the door of the garrison, he's at the top of the steps, he has a view of the crowd, he brings a mob to silence. And in Hebrew language, some think it was Aramaic at that point, at the Hebrew language, he shares his testimony with them. And we're going to look at the content, but what's the heart behind it? And do we share that heart? That people can do us injury, even illegally. And our first thought isn't call the police, take them to court. This weekend we had a rancher do injury to us in the at up at the ranches, um, and he had the sheriffs helping him violate and cross all of our land with cattle um, and trespassing on private property. And by the time I got home, I already had messages on my machine. They're calling. We want to get a lawsuit together. They've violated our private property rights. 
and um, and we're going to have criminal and civil, and they've got it all worked out, and they want to know if we had pictures and all this, because that's the American way, right? If you violated my legal rights, I'm taking it to you in the court. That's not what Paul's heart is about. Because it's not his personal preservation that he's interested in. He's already declared that. I am willing not only to go be imprisoned, but I'm willing to go and die for Christ's name. And it takes a very different spirit than you have been raised with in our culture to have that attitude of... You can take away my personal property. You can, you can violate my rights that supposedly we have in this country. <laughs> um, you can do all these things. You can, you can uh, take the income I earn and you can go and, and spend it on wicked and, vi- and wrong and evil things. Um, and, but that's, all of that really isn't my mission. My mission is not to protect my rights and my interests. My mission is to share Christ. And what makes Paul, with all the injury, we don't know how injured he is at this point, um, with all the injuries he's already sustained, um, I'm sure it wasn't... There's no way the, the soldiers got down there in, in, in very short order. I'm sure they rushed in there, but it took time for that to get there and for them to get around. The fortress actually sits on the opposite end of the Temple Mount and the gates, and so they would have had to come around in the crowd and mess. And so whatever injuries he has incurred, he's not about trying to get justice on these people that beat him up when he shouldn't have been beaten up. No, he's about, I want to get them to understand my message, the mission. It takes priority over all this other stuff is my mission. The mission is that we tell people about Christ, give our testimony out of what he has done in my life. It is not that I get justice. Because the fact is, is there is only one place that we will get justice, and it is nowhere on this planet. Justice will come when God brings it. That is what we wait for. And it is not while we are here that we seek justice. We seek justice when we are gone and God will pour out his justice. First with his wrath and then for eternity in everlasting fire. There will be justice. And we have Christians so wrapped up today in this country with getting what we deserve, what we believe we deserve, and to getting what is just for us. And we are taking everyone to court to establish our religious rights. Here's your religious right. Believe it and live it. No one can take that away from you. They can take away your freedom, your money, your stuff, and your life. But they cannot take away your beliefs. There is no law that can do that. None. Zero. You're in my hand. My father is greater than me. You're in his hand. No one can take you out of my hand. 
So am I disgusted by the fact that by participating in the Affordable Care Act that some of the monies I spend on health insurance go to um, murdered babies that are in utero? Yes, it's disgusting. Fundamentally, that's not my mission. My mission is to stop and say, can I speak to you? And in your own language, can I tell you what Christ has done? The fact is, we live in a world full of sin. And they do disgusting, despicable things, like beat up innocent preachers, trying to do what he is told and behave himself. And that's what the world does. And it's called sin. And there is no lawsuit. There's no Supreme Court in any land that can rectify that situation. The world is full of sinners who sin. And in sinning against God, they sin against his people. And we can invoke, on occasions, our citizenship, which he is going to do before he takes another licking. But that is not the priority. Priority is the message. What is our mission? And what are we willing to to put on the altar to accomplish that mission. Paul made it very clear, I am ready not only to be bound, but to die, Jerusalem. Are we prepared to complete our mission? Because we trust God to work in the circumstances that he says that (laughs) um, he'll bring justice one day so I can trust him to bring justice and in the interim I can serve him faithfully knowing that he will work all things together for the good uh, and that's not my good but that's the good um, and, and for the benefit not just of my own comfort levels but of all the workings of God in the world can I trust him and your following after God is not dependent upon the law of your land. It is dependent upon the rule of God in your heart. Paul was prepared. He, was, he, he had dedicated himself. And so whatever it takes, I'm still going to turn at the end of the day, having been bloodied and beaten, having these people curse me and drag me around and wanting to have murderous intent. I'm still going to turn around at the end of the day on the steps of the citadel and I'm going to say, brethren. Men of Israel. Fathers. Hear me. Oh, that we would have that spirit as we confront our world. That before we get into what your rights are as a citizen... Let's remember that my mission comes first. Before we talk about what your rights are at work, your mission comes first. 
the fact is we're more concerned about our money and trying to force morals on people who without Christ can't possibly attain to them, let alone embrace them. Our mission is a message of Christ, not a political agenda, not a set of financial interests, not even church buildings and pulpits. Our mission is the message of Christ. And are we ready to put it all out there for that message? For that mission to be accomplished? Paul was ready. And because he was ready, he could receive that horrible mistreatment and not have anger in his heart He can turn and say, brethren and fathers. Oh, that we would be able to do that in our relationship with homosexuals, with liberals, with fill in the blank. I have a message that's more precious to me than my property rights, more precious to me than only even my own physical well-being. And you need to hear it. And that kind of heart comes from trusting God's word. And God said, this is what's going to happen to you. Be prepared. And now, in a prepared mode, you're able to minister in the midst of misery. If you're unprepared, you'll never minister when you're in misery. It'll always be about you, poor me, poor me, poor me, and you'll never think there's any place for ministry. And there won't be, because you weren't prepared, because you didn't believe God's word, when he said that you must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. We are pretty sure it's supposed to be a, a feathery cloud that coasts in, and we're supposed to have, you know, lemonade on the way, ice cold. We're pretty sure that's the way to heaven. When Jesus said something very different. Where's your heart? Is it for the mission and the message? Or is it just going to be about you and the misery because you didn't trust the God you claimed as your Savior? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and for the warnings you give us and the information you've given us that prepare us to know that if the world hates you it should hate us and that we ought to be braced for that and calmly endure it and still focus not on getting even but on the message and ministry that we have Lord give us the heart of Paul, heart of your son, who understood that to accomplish the good required their suffering and even death. Help us to relearn the principle of sacrifice 
Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.